The sermon today is verses 1 through 10. I am going to just read right now verses 1 through 4 because that is going to be the primary portion of our study today. So Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Well, as we grow in our relationship to God, we tend to think of this process that God is doing in us to make us more like Jesus as addition and not subtraction. Let me say that again. We tend to think of sanctification, this process, in between conversion and glorification where God is molding us and shaping us and changing us to be more like Jesus. That whole process seems to us to be addition rather than subtraction. What I mean by that is we picture God building something up. So knowledge is being added, experiences which build faith are being added, various trials where you are stretched and you discover the faithfulness of God are being added. Life is like a construction zone and God is building a building and He is building you up one brick at a time. That is a kind of an unspoken conception we have of this process. But I want to say to you this afternoon that that is not entirely accurate. The Christian life is not a work where God is building you up. Rather, it is a work where He is tearing you down. It is not a work of addition, but of subtraction. Day by day, year by year, God is breaking down the old you so that Jesus Christ may be revealed in you. If you're a Christian today, you have been born of the Spirit of God and you have been inwardly transformed. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that new creation is encased in a body that has all kinds of broken desires. You still possess a desire to sin, and that part of you is what must be demolished. So when I say God is tearing you down, I don't mean He's tearing down your personality. I don't mean He's tearing down in you what is unique about you that makes you you. I'm talking about the part of you that holds on to the lusts of this world. God is tearing that down. It is a demolition process. So, while it is true that you do grow in knowledge and you do have experiences that God gives you where you learn to trust in Him, 
the primary work is one of subtraction. And of course, this is all to reveal Christ. If you think about your conversion, there was a moment in time where you believed the gospel and God made you a vessel of His grace and you became a possessor of the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that hinders the glory of that indwelling Spirit from shining in His fullness, get this, is you. You are what hinders the glory of the indwelling Spirit from shining forth. And you must be broken down. This is why the constant refrain in Scripture is a call to self-denial. It is a call to kill the sin that remains. This is why John the Baptist could say, I must decrease. It's a work of subtraction. You don't need more of God to indwell you, as if that is possible. You simply need less of you. This concept can be seen in several places, one of the most prominent being in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And so to encourage the saints at Colossae, he writes to them and he describes this process, which we will consider in chapter 3. Now just to summarize, I don't like to jump into books without context, so we will discuss briefly in chapter 1, Paul describes the supremacy of Christ over all things. Just to give you a taste of that, Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So if we were to summarize chapter 1, we could say Colossians chapter 1 is about who Christ is. He is Creator. He is Sustainer. He is Reconciler. And then, when you get to chapter 2, there's more in there about who Christ is, but really the emphasis in chapter 2 is about what Christ has done. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in Him. So if chapter 1 tells us who Christ is, chapter 2 
tells us what Christ has done. He has made us alive. He has forgiven our trespasses. He has conquered our enemies. And like a lot of the letters of Paul, Colossians can be neatly divided into two halves. The first two chapters is about who Christ is and what He's accomplished. And then the last two chapters are about your response to that. So you have two, two chapters about who is Jesus and what did He do. And then the second half of the letter is what do you do in response to that? Theologians will call this the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. Indicatives is just a statement of truth, like the book is on the table. Imperatives are a command, place the book on the table. Now you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor, I have had a week and I am struggling with this problem and this thing and that, and I'm barely holding it together and you want to talk to me about Greek grammar? And yes... Because this distinction will transform your life. Because if you confuse these categories and you think the Christian life is just a series of commands that God gives to you, which is the second half, the imperatives, and you don't understand the first half, the indicatives, what Christ has done for you, then you're going to think all your whole Christian experience is outward conformity to a set of rules, and that is what makes you pleasing to God. If you begin with chapter 3, where you're taught how you are to live, but you separate it from the first two chapters, where it describes how Jesus makes you righteous, then you're going to be regularly discouraged, and you're going to be striving constantly, trying to be pleasing to God. So this distinction that I'm making here is the difference between a life of dead religion and a life that's lived by faith. So just to describe this a little further, indicatives tell us what is true. Imperatives tell us what to do. Indicatives tell you who you are in Christ. Imperatives tell you how you are to respond to that information. Religion is man-centered and it's all about what you need to do to gain eternal life. You need to pray the rosary. You need to clean up your act. You need to go to religious meetings. You need to give to the poor. You need to uh, evangelize. And then maybe... If God looks at the end of your life, at the end of your life, He looks at the totality of your life, He's going to decide whether it was good enough. So if you are working the imperatives, which means do, 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 and you don't have the indicatives, which means done, 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 then you will be lost. And your concept of God will be warped. The indicatives tell us of our heavenly standing. The imperatives describe for us our earthly walk. The indicatives tell us about our position. The imperatives tell us of our practice. 
The indicatives tell us about, of, about you in Christ and the imperatives about Christ in you. What does that look like, having Christ in you? So, we're looking at chapter 3, but we're keeping chapters 1 and 2 in mind. Jesus has done all this for you, and now, this is where we start what you do. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Let's stop right there. This is describing a reality in the life of the believer. Everything that flows is for people who have entered into fellowship with Christ. They have had their sins forgiven and they have been given eternal life. In fact, this if in the Greek is called a first class conditional, which means if this is true and we know it is. So other conditional clauses are like if and we're not sure, like there's a level of uncertainty there, but a first class conditional in the Greek is if and we know that it's true. In fact, some translations will translate this since. If you have the NIV, a couple others, it will say since you have been raised with Christ. So don't look at that if as if we're not really sure For the believer, there's a level of certainty there. So he's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, and here come the commands, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So you have two main verbs here, which are the imperatives which assume that you belong to Christ. And these two are seek and set. This is what we are to do. These are the commands. Now before we look at those, what is is it that we are to seek after and to set our minds upon? And they both point to the same thing, which is that which is above. So the underlined word is that which you are to seek and that which you are to set your mind upon and that is the place where Christ is. This is the believer's true home. We are citizens of heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is a position of prominence and power and we as believers are seen as being with Him at that position of divine favor. That's where Christ is. That's where our home is. Because of that reality, we are to live in light of that truth and we are to live with that heavenly mindset. Now, we just had our friends the Beasts here last Sunday and they stayed with us for a week. In fact, Saturday I took them to the airport and they arrived to the States in mid-September and I was looking over their itinerary the other day and it was long. So they got here in mid-September and started at a conference in Atlanta. Then they drove to Kentucky to meet a church there. And then they went over to Colorado. And then they went to Arizona. And then to Kansas and Missouri and Texas and then Hawaii 
and then to California where they went to Huntington Beach and then they came here to Fillmore, stayed with us for a week and then back to Texas and then over to Kansas and then they'll finish up in Arkansas. Now, why are they doing all this? Well, because they have a home in Kenya where they have planted a church and they have started an orphanage and they need support. So, every stop on their visit has a goal in mind. Every Sunday service they go to, every time Jeff preaches at some different location, it all has their home in mind. Why are they in the States? Why are they bouncing from state to state? Because they're raising support for their home back in Kenya. They need sponsors for the kids. They need financial support. They need supplies that they cannot get there. And it's all done in light of their home. Now, in the same way, we as believers are to live our life in light of where our home is, which is at the right hand of God. Home is where Christ is. Is that your attitude when you live this life? Is that what you're thinking as you wake up on Monday morning? Or as you go on vacation? Or as you uh, do some of the more menial tasks of this experience? Do you have your mind set on things above? Do you have Christ as your home? This is where Jesus is ruling and reigning. And because of that position we have in Christ, we don't need to tremble when nations go to war. We don't need to fall apart when life gets hard. We do not need to completely collapse into fear and panic when we go through a season of suffering. Why? Because Christ is at the right hand of God and we have our home with him. And because he's ruling from there, that is where your position is, and that is how you are to live in light of those in that reality. So he says here, you are to seek the things that are above. Now, what does that mean to seek the things that are above? What does it mean to seek? One of the most significant events to shape American history happened in California in the mid-19th century. In 1848, the discovery of gold nuggets in the Sacramento Valley sparked what we know as the gold rush. As news spread of the discovery, a 100,000 people moved west to try to strike it rich. And we know back then this was not an easy thing to do. There were mountain ranges that were difficult to cross. There was inclement weather. There were no roads. There were no mini-marts or gas stations on the way. There were no places you could be seen by a doctor. There were many dangers. They used to take wagon trains, so they would have a wagon train a mile long of people all traveling together because it would be safer that way. And just to give you an idea, heading from Independence, Missouri to the San Francisco area took six months. Six months. I wouldn't want to drive in my minivan for six months. 
I got air conditioning, I got heated seats, I got all, you know. Why were they doing all this? Well, they, they were seeking something. They were seeking wealth. So this is an example, that story is an example of people seeking to get something. What Paul is describing here is we are to seek something not to gain it, but because we already have it. The New English translation translates this, keep seeking the things above. Now the picture is that your home is in heaven and your work here on earth is to reflect that. You are an ambassador. So rather than you're making your home here, you are to pursue that which pertains to your eternal home. That means in your daily life, you're looking for ways to connect your future home to your present home. And that is to be your focus. How do you do this? Can you turn off the air, Chuck? How do you do this? How do you seek the things above? Well, you meet with God in prayer. That sounds like one way you could do that. You go to Bible studies, you have personal devotions. You engage in fellowship. You share the gospel with others. You give and you serve and you look for opportunities where God might use you. You live with a resolve to be God's agent for change in this life that is very dark. You look for ways to invest your time and your resources into God's kingdom and not into this life that's passing away. So he says we are to seek the things that are above, but he also says we are to set our minds on things that are above. So to seek means you are pursuing the things of God in your daily life, but to set means you are being mindful of eternal realities as you go about your day. So you are purposely putting God before you in everything, in your thinking and how you interact with your surroundings. You're not just being pulled around by your emotions all day. You're not just uh, drifting along and, and, and wherever your, your thinking takes you, you are trying to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to live that way. So both your thoughts and your actions are to comport with God's ways. So I've said this before, the way I think of it every day is, I meet with God in the morning, and then I invite Him to join me for my day. So if I have errands to run, or if I have a church to go preach at, or if I have whatever to do, I am taking God with me. I'm not having a prayer time in the morning and reading the Word, and then I'll check back with you tomorrow morning. I am abiding in Jesus. That's my pursuit every day, whether I do that well or not. That's, that's my goal. Now notice in the second half of verse 2, it says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
Now, what does that mean? We, I mean, we have to work, right? We have responsibilities. We have to take care of our families. So hopefully you're not taking that to the extreme, but you recognize, of course, in the midst of all of those things we must do, it is appropriate to set your mind on your work that you're doing. It is appropriate to be focused on something you know, pertaining to the future, um, where you're having to meet with your, your banker or a co-worker or whatever because you have to focus on something. But you get the idea. It's that we are to live lives where we constantly have heaven's view in focus. So the way he contrasts that, I thought I would just ask a few questions and see what you think a response would be. What does it look like to set your mind on things above? So I'm going to give you a, 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 someone thinking on things below or on the earth, and you tell me what you think the above would look like. Okay, so below thinking or setting your mind on the things of this earth might be like, how can I get what I want in this situation? People think that all the time. You think that all the time. What would it be like, in contrast to this, to, th- to set your mind on things above? What would God want? Good. How can I honor God in this situation? So earthly thinking would be about me. Heavenly thinking would be about Him. Here's another one. How can I get people to notice me? That might be a selfish, worldly, carnal thought. What do you think a heavenly thought would be in contrast? Amen. How can I get people to notice Him? A below thought might be, how can I make myself more comfortable? This could have a variety of answers, but I had an answer to this. What do you think an above-thinking person would think instead? How could Christ be glorified in my circumstances? Um, I put, how can I make myself more useful rather than more comfortable? I'll just give you one more. How can I fit in more with the world? I mean, sometimes we get stuck in that kind of thinking. We wouldn't phrase it that way. But, you, you know, you walk around the mall or something and you say, oh, I thought... I wish I looked like that, or you know, we just start worldly thinking, which is the opposite of our heavenly thinking, which would say what? <laughs> Could be multiple answers, but how can I grow in holiness? So it's not about the external, it's not about any of that, it's about him. So seeking and setting is to be intentional. You are a traveler who's visiting a distant land, but you're always keeping your heavenly home in mind. You're not moving here. You are not permanently uh, planting all of your time and resources into this life. And so we as sojourners are always looking toward our home. This means not just on Sundays, doesn't mean you come on Sundays and you're faithful to come on Sundays, but then the Bible goes back on the shelf and see you next Sunday. 
No, it is always, all the time. So, we talked about indicatives and imperatives, and Paul is about to drop another major indicative here in the midst of this, and that it's going to make sense of much of this chapter. He says in verse 3, after seeking and setting, why? He answers the question, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why are we to seek the things that are above? Why are we to set our minds on things that are above? Because you have died. So that's what the four takes us back to. And why we are to do this is because a death has taken place. Meaning you have died to this world. The Christian is someone who has experienced a death to his or her former self. If you have not experienced a death to your former self, you are probably not in Christ. Now, it's possible you don't remember it, and that's okay. But there is something that happens in the life of a person where their old self dies. And then we have a funeral for you, which is called baptism. Hopefully you have participated in that. So this verse is your present reality. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And you are positionally at the right hand of God. And that is your home. And from that, you are to seek and to set your mind on things above. You have died to this world. You have died to sin. And your true life and your treasure is where? It is at the right hand of God. <clears throat> now you may say, well, I don't feel like my old self has died. In fact, I feel like my old self is very much alive. I still have appetites for things that are not pleasing to God. I still have sinful tendencies and habits. And that is probably the case with most of us. And that is why we are called to put to death that which remains. So your job, my job, we as Christians, as we live in this period of time called sanctification where God is conforming us to the image of Jesus until we reach our eternal home, our job is to die to our former selves. So in one sense, we have died. That's a clear statement of Scripture. Our old selves have, have died. And it's also absolutely true that we are commanded to put those former ways to death. So he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life? appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice the contrast there between death and life. The old has died, the new has come, and that new has a new focus for living, and that is Christ. Christians are not people who go to church on Sundays and keep all the rules as best they can. Christians are people whose lives have been changed 
from treasuring the things of this world to treasuring Christ. Christians are people who have had their affections changed and now they have affections for Him which become greater than their affections for sin. You once served yourself and now you serve Christ. You do things with Him in mind. You are ever conscious of eternity. And when Christ appears, you will also appear with Him. Why? Because you belong to Him. And where He is, you will be. So let me ask you, true or false question, is Christ your life? Is Christ your life? Do you read this and think, that's talking about me? Or are you just doing some kind of exterior religious thing for this reason or that? Because I promise you, if you are not treasuring Him, you are treasuring something. It's been said that there's a simple way to find out what you treasure. One can tell you what you treasure by simply looking at your checkbook and looking at your calendar. How you spend your money, how you spend your time. Those two things reveal what is important to you. If you can go out to dinner and spend $80 on a meal for yourself, but you can't imagine putting $80 in the offering plate, then that reveals something about what you treasure. And you know I don't preach on money and giving. I don't like to guilt people. I'm just making a point here. This is a way that you can tell where your treasure lies. If any free time that you have is spent on personal recreation and yet you can't seem to find time to stay in the Word consistently or time for daily prayer, that is saying something about what you treasure. And again, the Christian life is not about keeping rules and checking boxes, but it is about treasuring one thing over another. What are you treasuring this afternoon? What are you treasuring this afternoon? It's good to examine ourselves. It's good to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. It's good to look inside and say, man, am, is this talking about me? Is Jesus really my life? If someone was to observe my life day in and day out, would they say, man, this guy is committed to his faith? Or would they say, eh, So, Colossians 3 is a wonderful chapter because it not only describes what conversion looks like, but it describes for us where the home of the true believer is, and that is with Christ. We're given a set of imperatives, these commands, but they're always in light of the good news, which is chapters 1 and 2, and I have to just emphasize this again because I don't want anyone leaving here thinking, I got to work it harder. I got to check the boxes better. 
Let me just summarize here. He says, chapters 1 and 2, because you are raised with Christ, sorry, this is chapter 3, because you are raised with Christ, because you have died with Christ, because your life is hidden with Christ, because Christ is your life, because you will appear with Him in glory, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 5. This is the dying I was talking about earlier. This is the deconstruction I was talking about God doing that work in you. He doesn't do it apart from you. He commands you to be part of this. He calls you who have died to put to death the sin that remains. Which basically means you have died with Christ, therefore die to yourself. Those are two equal biblical truths. You are a citizen of heaven. You are given a new nature. You are given the Spirit of God so that you can now obey God. And you are commanded to kill that part of you that remains in opposition to God's will. And I can't be the only one who, who knows what I'm talking about here. I mean, I want to do good and evil is right there with me. We are to kill these inordinate desires that remain and that go against the will of God. And oh, how I wish at conversion we were made perfectly holy and we did not desire to sin anymore. But that is not the case. So we are commanded to seek the things that are above, to set your mind on the things that are above, to put to death what is earthly in you, verse 5, and then he tells us, gives us sort of a laundry list of sins to put to death. It's not exhaustive, but it gives you an idea. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So, when a person is born again, it is not the end of something. It is the beginning of something. You are now called to live for Christ in a world that opposes Him, and sometimes in a vessel that opposes Him. And your flesh wants lots of things that are outside of God's will and you are to repeatedly say no. And you are to kill those desires that remain. So I ask you again as we conclude, does this describe you? Is everything I'm saying resonating with you here? Are you saying, yes, this is my pursuit? Yes, this is my daily goal? Yes, I am regularly putting to death sin. I am actively 
pursuing my heavenly home. Christ has already accomplished salvation for those who believe. Already accomplished. You do not put sin to death to gain God's favor. You put sin to death because you have it. And our job is to follow Him all the way until we reach that heavenly home that God has prepared for us. Are you doing that today? Let us pray. Lord, we know that none of us does that perfectly. None of us probably do it consistently. Oh Lord, we have good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, good years and bad years. It is a struggle and it is a challenge, but Lord, if Your Spirit is within us, we have a desire to seek those things. Please help us, Lord, to seek after You. Please help us, Lord, to examine ourselves and to, to look for that sin that remains and to put it to death where it may be found. For your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.